Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to be in verses 12 through 15 discussing Christian relationships. Paul has been giving deeper instruction, theological instruction, doctrinal persuasion to the Thessalonians, things that they needed to know that he was not able to give them. He only had so much time and then he had run out of town. And, and so he's, he, he feels like he fell short. Well, he probably did, but he writes back to them and uh, corrects some things or at least gives them instruction, most particularly about the saints who have died in the Lord. You know, thinking that Jesus would just come right back and then Christians start dying. And so he gives them this wonderful eschatological teaching on, on rapture and resurrection. Moves on from there talking about how we as the church are not destined for wrath. That the wrath of God is going to fall on the world, the inhabited world. But the church is not destined for wrath. Now, this is all applicable to us, of course, today. Uh, everything is, and especially we should listen to the apostolic doctrine of Christian relationships. It's, it's a brief section, and there are a lot of sections in the New Testament teaching us about our relationships within the church. And we should pay, pay close attention to them. Because if we just were obedient to these teachings of the apostles, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, the church would be a mighty force. The Bible-believing church would be a, a, a mighty, mighty force. We are encumbered with this great commission. It is, it is both a laborious task and it is a happy work. It's a very simple thing to sow the seed. We are told in the New Testament that if we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully. Christ gives to us the parable of uh, the seed and the sower of the seed. And the sower of the seed had a simple job. Of course, this is the church. The job is simple. Sow the seed. And the seed is the word of God. We, we, are, we cannot help the condition of the soil in the world as we sow the seed. As a matter of fact, the sower of the seed in the parable that Christ teaches apparently didn't know, at least in some part, the condition of the soil. His job was to sow the seed. And so in obedience to that, he sowed the seed everywhere. You remember the story, the parable. Some of it fell on hard pavement. Well, it wasn't going anywhere. It was going to be eaten up by the birds. And then some of it fell among thorns and thistles and it didn't have an opportunity uh, to take root and grow, and so it was choked off. Christ said that's the seed being choked of the seed of the word being choked off by the cares of the world. And then he talked about 
the other seed that fell into good soil and it took root and it grew. We have this, we have this simple task to sow the seed. This is the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. Everything we do, we should be sowing the seed, the word of God. Again, later in the New Testament, the apostolic teaching is if you'll sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. A hundred million and more things can hinder the church from that simple task just to get your mind off of it. To take away resources to do other things that have nothing to do with sowing the seed. As I studied more deeply the seven churches of the Revelation, I find myself having a tendency to agree with those because we have the privilege of sitting at this point in time looking back on the history of the church. I find myself increasingly agreeing with those who see the seven churches as one aspect uh, being the history, the era, the seven eras of the church. I spent some time this week revisiting a study on the seven churches of the Revelation. The sixth church is one of the two churches about which nothing bad is said. It is the church of Philadelphia, Philadelphus. It's uh, this brotherly love. It is the church of brotherly love. The historical aspect teaching of that is that this era of the church began in the middle to late 1800s when Great Britain began sending, well, not the nation itself, but the church within Great Britain, certain people within Great Britain stirred in their hearts to take the, the, the work of Christ, the message of Christ to parts of the world where the gospel had never been preached. The, the outreaching, the, the evangelistic, the mission, the mission era of the church after the time of the Reformation. There's a, board, there's a deeper study there, I won't get into it, but here's the, here's the deal. The sixth of the seven churches, if you want to think of it as the seven eras of church history, the sixth of the seventh is the one who is, who is the church moving out and moving forward. Christ introduces himself to that church and he says, I have the key of David and I open doors that no one can shut and I close doors that no one can open. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Now, the implication to me is there could come a time when those doors close. If you can think about that. 
The end of the Philadelphian church is seen in rapture. Christ says to the Philadelphian church, you have, you have guarded my word and exalted my name. And because you have done this, in other words, it, uh, against the backdrop of the rest of the world, it, it was a time where it was difficult, apparently not popular, to guard, protect, the, keep the word of God and to exalt the name of Christ. The person of Christ. Christ goes on. He says, because you have done this, I will keep you from the hour of testing, trial, testing. That will come upon all of the inhabited earth, which I will send upon all of those who dwell on the earth. Now, if you go through the rest of the revelation, you will note that those who are happily following uh, the beast and the false prophet are designated as those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers. Christ makes the promise to this outreaching, missions-minded, brotherly love church who love the word and keep it and guard it and protect it and exalt the glorious Christ into the world, in the world. He makes this promise to take them out of the world when the hour of testing comes. But then right after that is Laodicea. Laodicea, if, if as Philadelphia means brotherly love, Laodicea means the rights of the people. Laos to chaos. The rights of the people. So by its name, you know, why were those seven churches selected? You don't see that there, there was a great church at Antioch. It wasn't on there. The church at Jerusalem is in one of the seven churches. Um, you could talk about others that were great churches uh, of the time in, in the early church. But these seven, and really the only one except for another brief, obscure mention, one of them, Laodicea, we don't know anything about, about their heart, nothing much about Smyrna or Thyatira. We don't know. They're chosen for particular purposes. And Laodicea is apparently revealed as a church that is turned inward and not outward. The rights of the people. I have a right to do this and I have a right to do that. And you don't have the right to tell me that I have this right. The rights of the people. Now, among the things among the elements of the church at Laodicea are their bragging about being wealthy. They are a money-minded church era, church, money. The power of the people, the rights of the people, and wealth, money and apparently present themselves as well-dressed because Christ says to them, you are naked and needy. Then he says they're lukewarm. 
And in that, he said, I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm and you nauseate me and I will vomit you out of my mouth. And then the most horrible thing that I can think of is that Christ says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Christ, who once was inside that church, has been evicted from the church. So this is not a church that is based on Christ or his word, the exaltation of Christ, the glory of the gospel. This is a church that is based on individual rights and a church that is based on the procurement of wealth and to look good, though Christ says they're naked. A big part of their purpose is to look good in the world. That's the church at Loud. That is the final season age of the church. A church that is more concerned about how you feel about yourself than about how you feel regarding Christ. The gospel starts with the depravity of man. Unless and until we come to the point that we realize our worthlessness, our defilement before God, our utter sinful condition, utterly sinful condition, unless and until we come to that point of brokenness, then we see no need for forgiveness, thus no need for a Savior. And apparently, this is a prevailing attitude in Laodicea. And Christ is on the outside knocking on the door to come into the church. If you'll let me in, I will come in and I will sit with you. And we will, no, the Greek, it means we will, we will supper together. We will sit down with each other and have the final meal of the day. It's a beautiful thought for all believers. Now, in my view, The light of Philadelphia is growing dim. And the light of Laodicea, there is no light there, but the darkness of Laodicea is growing stronger. Self-centered churches, not, not preaching the gospel, not standing on the deity of Christ, the glory of the Son of God, guarding and protecting the Word of God at any cost, sending forth, seeking, finding those open doors and walking through them, carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doors will close and Christ has guaranteed when I close the door, no man will open it. Now, this, that's a long introduction to the 
to the teaching of Christian relationships. I said earlier, there are a hundred million and more ways for us to be stopped in walking through open doors, in being the strong church that we should be, we could be, because some of these things might slip in. Therefore, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaches the Thessalonians certain things about the importance of Christian relationships. So, let's think about that. This is a great teaching for churches everywhere and, of course, for us as well. First, Paul addresses the relationship between the church as a whole and church leadership. But we ask of you brothers, and he states three things here. That you, number one, know those who labor among you. To know, Adena, it also can be translated to appreciate, but what it means is to see and seeing, perceive, and perceiving, know. The word labor here, kapiontis, uh, it's, it's a word to toil, to labor. It speaks of work that wearies, work that takes a toll, work that costs us something personally, maybe mentally, maybe physically, but it, it is a toil. Know them, watch them, see them, and appreciate them. See them to know them. Perceive that you may know to appreciate who labor among you and who lead you in the Lord. Now that word, taking the lead up there, it's a long Greek word, prestamenois, menois, menois. Noise. It means to preside over, to superintend, to direct. And the word, that long word also means to preside over from, from the position of guardianship. Take the lead, a person who takes the lead and directs presides over, superintends, thus to in part protect the people. The backdrop here, of course, we've talked about it, Thessaloniki. It was a place that was inundated with paganism. And paganism was, generally speaking, a morally bankrupt religious system. 
things that the Bible forbids were welcomed into those religious activities in paganism as part of worship. It's very enticing to the baser human instinct. And against that backdrop, Paul speaks of those who in leadership, and that's what the word means, the long, the long word there, it means with a view to guardianship. To be able to teach, to instruct, to admonish, thus to caution and warn. As a matter of fact, the word admonish. Admonish. To lead you in the Lord and admonish you, admonishing you. Nuthatuntus. To caution and warn by way of instruction. This is what Paul is doing. Pointing out in the culture where they find themselves there, these Thessalonians, pointing out the damnable flaws of paganism in which they're immersed but from which they must stand apart as Christians. There have always been multitudinous things that the world enjoys in which the Christian cannot participate. It's sinful. It's wrong. Are you born again? Then you have a, a new outlook. You're regenerated. You've confessed sin and you have been forgiven. And now you're growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are maturing in the faith. And the more you mature in the faith, the more you recognize things in the world that once were important that are no longer important. What, things that maybe you even enjoy that you can't enjoy anymore. This is admonishing. Paul admonishes, he teaches with a view to caution and warn the Christians in Thessaloniki. Second thing he says about the relationship regarding leadership. Number two, that you regard them very highly in love because of their work. Now that's a different word from labor or toil. This word work, ergon. It means a work that has to be accomplished. A task that must be fulfilled. Now if we go back to the first part of his letter here and think about it, and Paul is bragging on how their faith is, is sounded out across the world because churches have been planted Macedonian, Achaia, and it all came from Thessaloniki. They were doing a great job. So this was a work, this is the work of the church that has to be accomplished. It's, it's never really fulfilled 
until we die or the Lord comes, one or the other. That we are not raptured out of this world yet is proof that God is still calling his own to himself. I don't know who the last one will be. I don't know where it'll be. Oh, what if it was somebody here in Somerville at Shiloh? I don't know. I, I don't know. It gave me pause there for a moment. I'm wondering if we, would, if we would even be told. Yep, that's the last one. I'm not sure he'd even say it's, it's God's business. But until the last, until the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, we have this ceaseless work, this ceaseless task. Now, in the, in the general context of verses 12 and 13, going back to those who labor among you, lead you in the Lord, and so forth, speaking of their work, their work to caution and warn, to superintend, to lead the work in the Lord, to preside over with guardianship, and then labor in a way that costs something, that wearies, a labor that wearies, esteem them highly in love because of their work. And the word work is a word relative to the church that speaks of a work that will never stop until we are dead or caught up in the rapture of the Lord's church. So, their work. Know those who labor among Know them. Regard them highly. And then finally, and boy, this is the kicker. Live in peace with one another. When I was 15 years old, I got the mess beat out of me by another boy. He was 18, I was 15. And I thought to myself, I don't want that to ever happen to me again. <laughs> I was in the same grade. He was a friend of mine, John Kroll. Some of you may have heard of him. He, had, he started the Big Oak Ranch. He's retired now. But I had two black eyes. The other guy had a cut and a fat lip. I had two black eyes. In passing, John said, you need to take boxing lessons. <laughs> there was a guy going to our church where my daddy was pastor. He was a naval, naval recruiter. And uh, he had earned rank in Gozuru Karate while he was in Japan. And he was dating a girl in our church, and I pestered that guy to death until he agreed to start teaching me karate. And that was the beginning of a long trip that has not stopped. 
But the thing that is drilled into your head as you train in karate is there is no first move in karate. So you train accordingly. You never make the first move. You spend countless hours and hours and hours learning how to respond to whatever a person can do to you. And you never stop. That just Then once you feel pretty good with one guy, you go to two guys. And it's built into the hyung, the kata, or the punhai, the munkai. And that never stops. That never stops. Every day, almost every day, I train kata. And I'm not going to say it's good for weight loss. <laughs> but I still have a pretty quick kick. Here's the point. There is no first move in karate. Unless there is a biblical mandate, especially in the New Testament, for the church itself and the leadership of the church to take action. And that case is brought up in 1 Corinthians about a lifestyle of a person who needed to be addressed. But except for that, if it just comes to how you feel about something, listen, there should never be a first move among Christians. I don't want to start anything. We should never, and we should keep ourselves to ourselves. We're just a nasty old pile of clay. And even though we're redeemed and we've been saved, we're not perfect. And just because I have an opinion doesn't mean a thing. It's like elbows and knees and rear ends. Everybody else has one. There should never be a first move. I'm going to tell you something. I don't like what that guy's doing. Well, okay. Live in peace with one another. That seems like an easy thing to do. As Christians. So the first thing about Christian relationships is regarding leadership. Then the laity in general, all of us together, we're one another in the body. We're together. And how do we treat one another? We urge you, brothers. Same word that was before, admonish. Admonish the unruly. Now, you can take this and use this list and there are other lists in the scriptures in the New Testament. And now you can make the first move. As long as it follows the parameters of the apostolic doctrine of the church. Number one, admonish the unruly, the atactus, the out of order, those who are out of order. Out of order. Paul writes to the 
Corinthians, he says, let everything be done decently and in order. I recall once when I was a young pastor, we had a a man who actually was a deacon, but he fell into error and he followed false prophets and the teachings of false prophets. And he brought his error into the church in the sense that he was going to have Thursday night Bible teachings at his house. And they became unruly and out of order. It was, you know, sometimes you take a deep breath and you think, what am I going to do? We're also told that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So it takes prayer and it takes counsel among church leadership and more prayer. And finally, admonishing. You're out of order. This church is 100 years old. We have a basic established way that has been set according to the parameters of Scripture as closely as we can set it. And you have broken out of those parameters. And I will sit with you and tell you the ways that you're unbiblical. And we can debate it if you want to, but just be ready. When the time comes, one of two things will happen. If the person has a right heart, the scripture will break his heart. If all he can do is draw upon personal experiences or, or the experiences of others or what he's seen on television or this or that or the other. And it's outside the parameters of Scripture. May I say the Bible is not an open-ended book. There are denominations who believe that you can add to the Word of God by saying things or doing something. But not according to the Bible that I read. And so... Those things cannot happen, cannot exist. Now, this particular, of course, when he was corrected, the whole bunch of them just shut up and they said, oh dear. And fitted themselves back into the congregation after I spoke with them and had a meeting with some of them and help them to understand things. But the guy, the deacon who was the leader, he got all blowed up. 
And he grew his hair real long and he grew his beard out real long. And then he became, I'm not kidding you here. He had a business card, had his name on it that said he was a prophet and an exorcist. Business card. Prophet, exorcist, business card. And he took me to that part in Ephesians where it said there are first apostles and then prophets and then pastors and teachers. And he debated that in his calling, he had a higher office than mine. And so then we went to 1 Corinthians and talked about the New Testament office of prophet, which said it came to an end. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. It doesn't exist anymore. In the greater context, it spoke of the completed canon of Scripture. I don't need anything but the Bible now. So he got all mad and left, shaved off his beard, cut his hair, joined the Baptist church down the road, and never cut up again. For which we praised God. That was a good church. He joined a good church. Don't get me wrong. It was a great church. And we praised God. Now, here's what he's talking about. Admonish the unruly. Those who are out of order. You can be out of order in a lot of ways. We have a constitution of our church. I used to despise constitutions, but ours is totally based on the New Testament. You take it and look at it. It has New Testament references and Old Testament references for everything that's in there. We wouldn't have anything in there that wasn't biblical. So when someone becomes out of order, that means that he has moved from the he has moved away from New Testament doctrine. You just can't you just can't let that happen. It's not right. So here, brethren, admonish the unruly. Number two, encourage the faint-hearted. That's an interesting word that's translated faint-hearted. Oligopsuchos. Now the word soul is in there. It means to be small-souled. It means it speaks to a soul that is under development. Kind of like an embryo or something. It's under development. It's not completely developed. Therefore, can become faint-hearted. And they need encouragement. Comfort. Another word for that word encouragement is comfort. Comfort the soul that is still being developed. Encourage that person. Number three, help the weak, the fragile, the weak. It speaks of a person who is exhausted. I've seen people in church who can they used to call it getting burned out. I don't know about that. I'm not sure I like that phrase, but 
People can be, can be just like Elijah. He wanted to kill us. He wanted to die. If, if all you can see is the chariots of Jezebel or the chariots of Jezebel and you run for 120 miles, you're going to feel funny. And you're not going to be yourself. We studied that not long ago in our study on Wednesday night. They grow weak, but they, needed, they need to be, the word help means to firmly hold on to. Firmly hold the person who has collapsed. All of us come to a point of collapse and we need help. We need to be re- reinvigorated. We need to be refreshed. And the points are made in the adventure of Elijah. Be patient with everyone. Be patient with everyone. Perseverance. Be patient with everyone. I don't do it anymore because I don't have my books in my, in my office anymore. Everything's pretty much online. But I used to have a real soft set of books that I called, I called it the head knocking corner. And I would think about somebody who was just trouble. Oh, Lord. This person has popped up out of hell or something. And I would go to my office and I'd stand in front of those well padded books and I'd go. That's all I need to do. Be patient with everyone. If God is in it, patience works. Perseverance works. God's at work. God's always up to something. I've had some of those, may I hasten to say, I've had some of those people who were head knockers that became some of the most beautiful Christians I've ever known. Not through anything that I did, just a lot of prayer the work of God. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. We don't have that in Baptist churches, do we? I'll get you for that. Just wait till the nominating committee comes out. Never repay, you don't, you don't get any dividends for that. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good. The word means inherently good. Seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Don't ever say a word unless it's a good word. We have that in Ephesians chapter 4. Don't ever do a thing unless it's edifying, encouraging, and comforting. I've had a handful of, probably more than that, but what pops up through my mind through the churches that I've had five, well, this is my fifth. And I immediately think of people who were always so precious and good. And I could not, there are people that I've had as members that I, I could not ever remember where they were sour 
or said bad things about people. And I'll tell you this, there was one particular brother who was an older, he's been dead quite some time, Brother Anthony. That was his last name. He was a quiet deacon, just as quiet. You never knew he was there. And maybe once every five years, he would stand up in business meeting. And I got to tell you, it was like E.F. Hutton. Nobody knows what that means anymore. When he stood up to address an issue, everybody else shut up. We all had to withdraw because of the greatness of the character of the man. Quietly, gently, and lovingly, he would address the issue in the most positive way he could think that put everybody else to shame. He's one, I remember him particularly. There were others as well. Seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That kind of church, I'm going to tell you something. You have a church like that, The community, the area, sooner or later the whole world will flip upside down. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on him to save you. He is bound by his word to save you because he's the one who calls you. We'll be dismissed just a moment in prayer. But if you're here without Christ and God is calling you today, we have deacons and their wives in rooms just across the hall as you exit. You'll see them. They'll take care of all of your details. They'll pray with you regarding salvation. If you're here and you want to come into the body of this church as a Christian, they are prepared to talk with you about that. So the invitation is for you to step into those rooms and speak to those deacons before you get away. Prayerfully, would you stand all over this room and we'll be dismissed in prayer.